You're listening to the Autism Weekly Podcast. Each week, we share community voices and bring light to stories that increase awareness, acceptance, equity, access, and inclusion. If you haven't already, subscribe to join the Autism Weekly family. I'm your host, Jeff Skabitsky. This week, we welcome Chris Collins to the podcast to talk about the role ABA can play in clinical settings and general education to support inclusion. Chris is the founder of a Florida-based nonprofit called ABAID, that's A-I-D, Suncoast. The nonprofit helps families get access to the care they need in the settings they need it. There are often barriers to getting ABA in the school system. Back to school is in full swing, so we're incredibly excited to talk with Chris about this topic. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So let's get to your background first. It's always fun to hear about the stories of what brings somebody into, and you're in, in such an altruistic field, of trying to help people to, to gain access to such a needed care. But what brought you to the field of autism? So <clears throat> I started at a, as a VPK teacher um, at a nonprofit preschool, at an inclusion preschool. And I you know, I, I really fell in love with the field. Um, it's not something that I was that was completely foreign to me. I, you know, grew up with a, a mom who was a teacher of ESE. I volunteered a lot of my time um, coaching soccer for uh, children with disabilities and um, babysitting and things like that uh, for those families. So I always kind of had, you know, a passion for it. Um, but once I was in the classroom, you know, working with a couple of our kids with autism and um, my first kind of foray into uh, ABA was completely by accident. I was implementing a token economy in my classroom. I thought, you know, this was the greatest idea um, since the wheel that I came up with. And then I found out, you know, <laughs> it's a pretty fundamental uh, tool in the ABA field. And so <clears throat> I had someone, you know, kind of mentor me and tell me about ABA. And I was super interested in it and kind of went from there, became an RBT and, you um, just saw kind of the need that was there for just include how useful it is in inclusion classrooms um, firsthand as a teacher. But also, I am a step parent. My child has autism and was in an inclusion class himself. He's now at an ABA clinic uh, most of the day. And so, you know, I kind of I feel as though now I can kind of tell this story from several perspectives. I've been a provider. I've been a teacher. I've been a parent um, and I've been a fundraiser for for uh, for these services. And so, you know, I, I like to say I have I have a full picture. Yeah, no, it's it oftentimes amazes me is how often people who have direct connection and direct experience and that passion, how much that drives innovation. And it, it probably starts with seeing gaps is that you you like you said, we're in diagnostic pre pre-Ks. And as much as we hope to resource schools, is that there's always going to be a gap between what you hope to be able to do and what you can afford to do, whether that's a school or an individual. So what in the school setting were you looking at to say, you know, there's something missing? Or, you know, if we resource this differently, that we'd have a better opportunity for the children to really experience inclusion. 
Yeah, so I think there's a couple things I saw, you know, with um, in Florida with the school system, uh, they do employ behavior specialists and behavior techs, but it's not really ABA. Um, it's most of the things they do are not behavior analytic in nature, but they try. Uh, but that's just it's just a personnel and resource issue, I think, at the end of the day. But that's a very big problem. And so I kind of focused my efforts initially on private school settings, which, you know, most of these are nonprofit schools that also don't have the resources to have behavior specialist or um, any kind of behavior practitioner, but they might outsource it to clinics and, and such. So finding the personnel, but also, you know, there are so many children in those preschool settings and elementary school settings that don't have, we'll call it the, the magical, uh, ICD-10 code that's going to get them insurance to pay for their behavior services and to see something, again, as simple as a token economy have such a powerful influence on an entire classroom of children, you know, ranging in abilities. You know, some of these children are typically developing. Um, many of them might have a developmental delay, but has, haven't been diagnosed yet. Um, you know, that's the nature of the preschool setting is a lot of them haven't been diagnosed, um, but they could benefit from it. Mm -hmm. uh, so providing resources to those preschools and schools and settings that maybe wouldn't have access to it otherwise, in particular, the kids who, um, like I said, don't have that that diagnosis that's going to get insurance to pay for behavior analytic services. Absolutely. And, and I think this is an age old question is, you know, we oftentimes know what that gold standard is. Oftentimes we know what we want to provide to our children and uh, those resources, they, they cost money. So with your nonprofit, what, what's unique about the structure of how you're trying to be able to fill this gap that might be something that could be replicated? So <clears throat> I'll give an example of uh, one of the programs that we're running now because you know, uh, for a short while, I was working on authorizations for ABA clinics um, across the country, some in Illinois, some in Michigan, some in Florida. And something I saw from the, um, you know, the evaluators who are working on these, uh, whether they're BCBAs or social workers that are approving these hours and these authorizations is I would see things get kind of checked off as, oh, that's, you know, that's not medically necessary. That's not medically necessary. And so, <clears throat> how can we get those types of services that might fall under the, um, the beneath the threshold of what they consider necessary? Um, while I would argue that this program is medically necessary, we have a program called the uh, Aversive Activities of Health and Wellness, where we really just have set up a dental clinic, a mock kind of dental doctor's office, uh, barbershop kind of three-way combination <laughs> Um, you got to make best use of the space you have. But, you know, that costs money. That's capital that not all ABA clinics have. And we were able to connect donors who felt passionate about that and saw that, you know, one of the most basic things I think as typically developing individuals, maybe we take for granted is the ability to go to a dentist. And as much as we might hate it, we do it and we sit through it and we power through it. But so many kids can't. Um, and I was fortunate enough to be able to tell the story to the donors from a personal space, which was, you know, every time I was taking my five, six and seven, like however old he was at the time, five year old was when it started, he was getting put under for teeth cleanings. And like, that's no way for, 
for a young child, um, autism or not, for a young child to have to endure that, you know, because it was so aversive to him. And so we have this, you know, Descense program where these kids are learning how to, you know, find those activities of health and wellness less aversive and to be successful, you know, in a controlled environment first. And then obviously the hope is always that they'll generalize it to the real deal. Um, And part of that too, we actually have partnered with a local dental school. So those students are coming in and doing teeth cleanings to the clients. So it's kind of a win-win-win for everybody involved in in that regard um, because they're getting exposure to children with disabilities who they're going to run into out in the real world. And the more of those types of dentists we have, um, maybe there'll be less need of the Descents Clinic that we've established. Um, no, I love but, that two-way street that you're describing, Chris. I mean, it's it's not always on the family to try and figure out the solution. Is that we have to empower the the stakeholders in the community, and what you're doing is is creating the opportunity for that child to actually benefit from normal daily living opportunities and start to develop those skills. Because we all know is that without proper dental hygiene, without proper medical care, uh, without being able to take care of yourself to be, uh, to, to feel good about yourself, whether that's a haircut or whatever it may be, is that it deteriorates parts of your life and it takes away from some of the enjoyment that you can have in other aspects. So I think that working with your community is, is probably one of the best ways to do it. How do you how do you talk to and who are you going out to find these resources from? Because like you said, they cost money. It's not coming from your medical benefits. Who's out there? Who's helping you? So there are um, private and family foundations and community foundations, and these are nonprofits established uh, by folks who want to give back, who want to be philanthropic. Um, and just finding them is as simple as just Googling uh you know, such and such your area and a community foundation and those those places will pop up and the community foundations in particular, they have, you know, a collection of donors and um, typically a, a pretty large amount of assets that they um, manage and make grants and make scholarships and all of those things. Um, and then for what I've done is, you know, to provide that access to the clinics is I've, you know, a re- registered 501c3 so that it meets all the requirements that a community foundation and a private foundation need to be met by the IRS and, you know, what, what governs all of that and what's t- tax deductible and who can receive a gift and, and everything. And so that's kind of been, you know, my, the model by which I've gotten this off the ground. Um, you know, I'll, I'll call it a, a private and philanthropic partnership. It's like kind of meeting those two, uh, industries, for lack of a better word, uh, together because, you know, there are resources out there. It's just like knowing how to access them, knowing how to ask the question, knowing who to ask the question to. Um, but usually, you know, I've noticed that people want to help out. It's just getting the story out there. No, absolutely. And I mean, this is a way where you have direct impact into what's going on. And I think that that discrepancy is important for everybody to look at is there are certain things that a medical plan will pay for. They're going to pay for very specific components of a treatment plan. But some of these daily living skills, some of these 
academic and classroom skills are things that you're battling over and whether or not you should have to battle over it and whether or not you should have to go into appeals process with your insurance company that's uh, that's for a different show but what you're talking about right now is filling that gap and in the classroom what are some of these ABA benefits that that people might not be receiving from their insurance company that are accessible in the classroom that maybe we can help to resource through film, philanthropic donation. Yeah, I think with the classroom in particular and kind of what ABA um, has been doing is it's really a more of a professional development model. Um, it's it's so expensive to try to, you know, outfit every room with a behavior tech or every school with a behavior analyst. But what we can do is give them, give teachers the tools uh, that we use every day as behavior analytic practitioners. And that is, you know, bring it, bringing it back around to the the token economy, my favorite thing. It's, it's something so simple that any, I mean, anyone can do it. Anyone can implement that in their classroom. Um, and when you're talking about, you know, creating a more inclusive classroom is what can we do that doesn't single out a, a student for their accommodations. And that's what I've always loved about um, little token boards is that you can give every child a token board. Um, and, and in fact, that that was inspired by a teacher that I knew and you know she was working towards becoming a BCBA and she had two children in her class that were nonverbal. Everyone else was more or less typically developing and she had all of them have a token board. And I thought, why don't we just do this in more classrooms? Let's start giving, you know, let's show every teacher out there the benefits of having that visual schedule. You know, mm -hmm. let's show them the benefits of antecedent manipulation. Let Just and educating them on what is this behavior attention maintained or is it automatic? You know, all of those things that that you learn in the clinic and or as a as an RBT or BCBA that I don't think is a huge time commitment for teachers, but I think it pays huge, huge dividends. So, you know, what's not the what's not the love about that? It's a small time commitment for big results and big impact. Absolutely. I mean, ABA in the real world. I mean, it it exists, and it's not just for uh, autistics. It's for everybody, and we all benefit from positive reinforcement, being recognized for specific things that we're doing well, that we're challenging ourselves with, so we can see. You know, I. I I feel good about achieving this goal. I move forward or my effort was high. So when you're looking at that idea of inclusion, because you've mentioned it several times now, and you, you've seen it through your, your time working in the schools, from your time as a stepdad, um, what is it that you're seeing as so important with inclusion with a child's developmental growth that the investment is worth putting this extra funds to. So, you know, I, I'll actually bring it back around to something you said a little bit earlier, which was the, you know, people getting involved in this field, it's because they had a connection to it at some point, right? And I think, you know, there's not a ton or any literature out there that I've found that I would love to start, you know, maybe seeing how many people are working in the special needs field because they were, exposed to it at a young age or they have a, a loved one who you know a nephew that's on the spectrum or a brother that um, has down syndrome or uh, an aunt that taught special education um because i'd, I'd guess that there's a, there's a lot of us that you know we didn't 
we didn't plan this from a young age. It just kind of feels like it was thrust upon us for one reason or another. Um, and so I think, you know, those benefits can't be understated. And that's just as a community, as adults, that's how it impacts, you know, the the teachers, the typically developing peers, that they are taught empathy and acceptance and inclusiveness and uh as for the children themselves who you know like my stepson for instance is you know it's hard to understate the development that happens with powerful peers powerful speech models articulation models um, behavior models i mean just having that you know a group of students at your table uh that are not like you, not like you with autism, not, you know, doesn't have the same obstacles you have, and they can show you, you know, what it looks like to attend to a lesson. And that in turn allows that child to succeed. And that's what we want is the, you know, the highest level of independence for those kids. And I think those typically developing peers can help them achieve that probably better than any of us can as (laughs) therapists and teachers, the peers are, are the ones that really do the legwork and have the biggest impact. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's super insightful, the fact that, I mean, when you're looking at building a community that demonstrates empathy, has social awareness, is inclusive, is that, you know, the way to do that is to create an environment where they have the opportunity to practice that. So not only are you benefiting the individual who you're trying to create an inclusive environment for, but you're actually creating that inclusive environment and benefiting everybody who needs to learn that skill, which it's it's not something that inherently is brought out by our society right now. Is that sometimes you have to create these opportunities <laughs> and teach it and help people to experience it. So I think I I mean I see where you're coming from, and uh, there is the the byproduct that ideally is that you have a lot more helpers in this world. Uh, because they've learned it at, a, at an early age, how they can be impactful for their community. When you're looking at, you know, how to be able to empower or resource so that inclusion actually works, um, one of those things would be is finding out ways to include that into an individualized education plan or an IEP. So how how do you incorporate some of those ideas to make sure it's matching up with the funding that you can do at the school to say, hey, you know what, we can help resource this particular component, or we can be there for that so that we can help to meet your educational needs? Yeah, so it's really difficult if we're talking about, you know, the IEP and in, in the, the education setting, because, um, it's it's unfortunate to say, but no amount of philanthropic support is going to provide the public schools with what they need to really create that least restrictive environment for all the all the kids who need it. <clears throat> but, you know, with our smaller schools and private schools, um, and I just also want to add with a lot of these specialized schools, uh, they might have an IEP, but they're not bound by the same laws that our public schools are. And so students leave for all num- all kinds of reasons, you know, better therapeutic services, smaller classroom sizes. Um, but those parents give up something. They give up that rights law. They give up the ability to hold the school accountable. Now, conversely, 
it's sometimes less of an uphill battle. Those schools are more likely to try to find the therapies that they need and contract out therapies with other providers. Um, but there's no legal recourse that they have, um, which is something that I've been working with, uh, not just through this nonprofit, but through my day job is, you know, getting these schools the resources they need, the teachers the resources they need, so that they can make sure that these students have everything they need. And there's no need for a legal recourse. There's no need to be obligated through law, but they're obligated through, um, I don't want to say a sense of duty, but it, that they can do it. It's achievable. It's right there for them. They have the supports they need. No, and then I think that that's the first step is being able to kind of create the open dialogue, identify those resources, and to have a working relationship. As soon as it becomes adversarial, now people have their guards up. They're not willing to try new things. They're not willing to accept the additional training because they feel like <laughs> there might be a watchdog over what's happening versus saying, well, let's work together to make something better. It might not be best today better let's incrementally get there so what do you what do you recommend to families as they're about to head back to school and i mean all of us want to make sure that we're providing the best opportunity for our children we want to be able to create the inclusive environment that, that you're creating for your stepson it's that we're trying to be able to do everything we can to make the world around them accepting um <laughs> so what do you what do you suggest for families through this process well, I think I should probably take my own advice. So I'll, I'll well, I'll use my my partner's advice that she gives me at the beginning of every school year with our stepson, as she says, Chris, be patient with these teachers because they're trying. I mean, you know, it's about balancing um, asserting yourself as a parent, advocating for your child, but showing some compassion for the teachers also and being flexible. Uh, and I think at the end of the day, as a parent, if you just remind yourself, we want the same thing. The teacher, the principal, administration, the, th the therapist, we all want the same thing, which is what's best for the child. Um, they have a, a lot of children in their view. You have your child. So it's I would say just being patient, but also not afraid to advocate for your child's needs either. Yeah, I mean, creating that team and that that trust within the team, I think, is is very important from step one of the educational process. So where can people I guess I'm going to make this a two part question. First of all, where are your services found? And then secondly, where can folks like myself who are looking to understand what could increase the the value of some of the opportunities out there and replicate some systems and understand how we can make your system even more scalable for even more families. What, I guess, where's that information housed? So if you go to abilitytoinclude.org, um, it will redirect you, but we're in the middle of changing our name, but it will <clears throat> bring you the website that has all of our pilot programs and uh, to your second part, I will be making everything that we do accessible to anyone who wants to replicate it in their area um, from the kind of directions and the model that we followed and also publish the results, you know, with identifying information redacted, obviously, but just something that other people can then use to 
you know, le leverage funding of their own or convince, you know, their bosses that this would be a worthy project to do with with uh, their clinic or their school. Um, and all that will be will be found on ability to include org. Um, and also, you know, if this is something that uh, our, our region is Sarasota and Manatee County, so that's in Florida. But if you're looking to do something similar in your area, uh, feel free to reach out and I will help. I think that's probably been the most useful uh, tool at my disposal has been I don't I don't really care about the nonprofit in and of itself. Like I've been very open with working with people. I don't need to be the fiscal sponsor. The money doesn't have to flow through. And you run into that a lot with nonprofits. People keep track of their scorecards, how much money they they raise and, and their programs. But I don't care about that. I care about the community. Um, I was born and raised in this in this area. So that's kind of always been my goals. I want to see a prosperous Sarasota Manti County. Um, and if you feel like that about your region, feel free to reach out and I can just kind of freely consult you, let you know where to find stuff. That's always been uh, a talent of mine, finding finding the resources out there for those who would like it. Well, I appreciate all the work that, that you're doing on this, Chris, and, and trailblazing a process through this. Is that opening up these opportunities for kids to be able to get a haircut, to be able to tolerate dentistry, to be able to to do a variety of things, but then also to be able to start to create more community around the schooling opportunities and potentially uh, in the future, maybe even bigger components as far as opening up community activities, restaurants, things like that, where we can really start to help to tailor an idea of inclusiveness and awareness is that I, I think that the idea starts and the more that you communicate about it, I think it's going to start to spread and we're going to see all the fruits of your labor really pan out, not just in Sarasota, but everywhere. So I appreciate you coming on today to, to start that dialogue. Yeah, I appreciate you reaching out to me and having me on. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week. Thank you.